With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Mina Kim, and I am so thrilled to be able to introduce Susan Fowler to you because you know her as the woman who wrote that momentous blog post in 2017 that exposed sexual harassment and a culture of mistreatment at Uber. Yes. And... I mean, it led to the downfall of the CEO of Uber and also really pushed Silicon Valley to ask some really hard questions about the way it treats women and people of color in the industry. And so we're going to talk about the experience of writing that very simply titled blog post of reflecting on one very, very strange year at Uber. But you're also going to learn more about Susan, before the blog post, who she is, the experiences she had that led up to writing it, and also the experiences after she wrote it. So, you know, I think a lot of people kind of wondered how you were doing after all of that, because you've talked about how you've had to remain silent post that blog post. So how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing pretty well. Actually, it's pretty surreal to have a whole bunch of people here who are interested in my story and who want to hear about it. And that feels really, really special to me. So thank you. So I want you to start by talking about, well, take us back to before you even joined Uber, what was your impression of the company? Because you started in 2015. So around that time, what drew you to Uber? I mean, it was the startup to work at, right? Like everybody would, would tell me like, oh, Uber's amazing. That's the place to work. I remember talking to recruiters and one of them saying, like, if you go and work at Uber, you can, like, do anything. You can be anything. You can work anywhere. And, you know, it was the most valuable private startup in Silicon Valley. And, like, what an incredible opportunity that was, right? They're, like, making, you know, the Uber app was something that so many people used all over the world. So that's, like, a real-world impact. And, seemed pretty amazing, like an amazing opportunity to me at the time. So then what happened on your very first official day with your team at Uber? So I showed up, I did, you know, the orientation, the training, and then finally it was my first day of like real work. Um, I was sitting down with my laptop. I was working on a few things when I started to get some chat messages from my new manager. At first we were talking about work things. And then the conversation quickly shifted away from work things. He starts talking about how he's in an open relationship. His girlfriend is having an easier time finding people to have sex with than he is. He's trying not to get in trouble at work, but he's really looking for women to have sex with. And I was like, huh, (laughs) 
what? And there were like a few moments of denial for me when I was like, no, this isn't happening. No, this, oh, yes, this is really happening. So I started taking screenshots of these chat messages. And like, it'd be like screenshot, email to myself, save it in the cloud, put it in multiple clouds, (laughs) tell my friends about it, (laughs) and send to HR. Because you believe that they would help you. In fact, it was one of the things that made you feel less freaked out in the moment as it was happening. I was so naive (laughs) because you were like, oh, this is a big company because you had worked at smaller companies Mm -hmm. previously that has a major HR department that I can turn to for situations like this. You know, can you talk a little bit about how it feels to actually get those messages? I mean, we laugh at sort of the ridiculousness of it, but the way it affects somebody who gets them, I don't think is that well understood. I feel like a lot of people wonder why there's hesitation sometimes in reporting it. I mean, you knew to do it right away, but can you just describe kind of what emotions you go through when someone is doing that to you, especially someone with power over you? Well, that was the the scary thing was that it was very clear that there's this power differential, right? This is my new boss. And I remember thinking at the time, I can't tell him to stop or to shut up because he is in charge. So I kept trying to change the conversation back to work. And there were even times when the chats would pause for a moment because I wouldn't respond. And I would hope that he would get the hint without me having to say something, without me having to put myself in that position. But he would just keep going. And... It's weird because it was one of those things where it was obviously out of line and still I felt, you know, those voices in my head, did I somehow invite this? Is this something that's normal that people do that I just don't know about? Because I was a nerdy homeschooled kid. Now, you know, I had a pretty good idea in my own little, you know, worldview of what was wrong and what was right. And this seemed very clearly wrong. But he was very comfortable in what he was doing. And it seemed like he wasn't afraid or ashamed or he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. And so it made me question myself for a moment of like, wait, am I just so out of touch? And it it didn't feel good at all. And then HR ends up just compounding that feeling of, am I responsible for this, right? Can you describe how they responded to you when you went to them? Yeah, so I reported to them. A little while later, they come back, they say, you know, we investigated and you're right. He did sexually harass you. He was propositioning you. I was like, yeah, duh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, good. They understand this is wrong. And they say, but this is his first offense. He's a high performer. We don't feel comfortable punishing him. We've given him a stern talking to, but that wasn't all. Then they gave me a choice. They said, either you can stay on his team and realize he'll probably give you a bad performance review because you turned down his advances and you reported him to HR on top of that. But it won't be retaliation if he does that because we gave you a choice to avoid it. So they say, so here's what your choice is, or you can go to a different team. And I was like, that does not seem like a choice. How is that a choice? So, of course, I choose to go on the other team. But it was very clear to me immediately that 
I had not done anything wrong, and yet I was the one that was so clearly being punished. And it just got worse from there. And I mean, the audience's reaction is so appropriate to how crazy that is that basically you have to accept a negative review for, you have to accommodate this person's terrible behavior, right? By being moved to another team or accepting a terrible review. I mean, the injustice of that is pretty unbelievable. And then, I mean, unfortunately you go on to find out this certainly wasn't his first offense. Yeah. Um, And, and that HR basically as you talk about earlier, you said that you were so naive, but that it was there to protect the company. Right? Yeah. And so the thing that I think is pretty incredible and that people will read when they read your book is that you kept going back to it. Like you kept, even though you knew what you were going to get, you made sure to keep reporting things. You were incredibly persistent. I mean, even in the face of things where uh, you tell the story of a manager who wouldn't even let you transfer yeah. off the team, um, because he wanted to keep his numbers of women on his team high. So he was artificially like giving you a bad review to keep you from going onto the team. Yeah. So he retroactively changed my review after I requested to transfer. And I reported that to HR as well. And they're like, oh yeah, this was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. But first offense. Yeah. Stern talking to. And the thing was, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, after I had learned from talking to other women at the company that, you know, this manager who had sent me these messages, this that wasn't his first offense. He'd actually been reported to HR before, and they'd been told it was his first offense. And so we all banded together and reported him, and... Their response to me was that, oh, the other people, they're actually, you know, it was his first offense when he did this. The other people were here to complain about you. And everybody else then decided, okay, we're not going to report things to HR again because clearly they're not here to help us. And even more than that, they retaliate against us. Everyone that went and reported this guy when we had these meetings with HR, everyone was retaliated against in very significant ways. Some people lost their jobs. And so everybody decides we're never reporting anything to HR again. They're not here for us. But I knew that in order to hold them liable and accountable for the behavior that was going on there, I had to report things to HR because in cases of harassment, discrimination, retaliation, it's not the perpetrator necessarily who is respond like legally responsible it's the company the company is responsible for ensuring that you have a workplace free of these you know behaviors and so i knew that i had to hold them accountable i had to keep everything in writing so i sent emails and emails and emails so they could never say oh we had no knowledge of this we didn't know this happened she never reported this to us and I just kept doing it. And there was like, you know, incident after incident after incident. What I think is so incredible about the incident after incident and the incident I just described of how he tried, how one of your managers tried to actually keep you on your team because he recognized that he looked good if he had more women engineers on his team is the fact that Uber clearly was aware of what looked good. Like they knew it was important to have a lot of women in your company. Yes, They knew it was important to to reward teams that kept a lot of women on their teams. Like they had all the programs for inclusion and gender equity. Yeah. And that was one of the things that blew me away at first because 
when I joined the company, there was this, you know, this number that I was told in my interviews that, well, 25% of our engineers are women. I was like, oh my God, like that's higher than any of these companies. And they're like, yeah, it's higher than like, you know, this company and that company and that company. It was very, very reassuring to me. And when I got into the company, I realized, wow, you know, they check all the boxes for a company that cares about diversity and inclusion. They have all these employee resource groups. They have, you know, women and people of color in positions of power. They sponsor these like hackathons and these like women in tech things. And like they just, they checked all the boxes, but what they didn't do, at least in my experience, was follow like basic employment law, right? <laughs> and I remember thinking like, why on earth, like it doesn't matter how many women you have if you're, if they're all getting sexually harassed, like there's a big difference here. <laughs> It, you, it's so interesting to hear you tick off like, well, I knew to do this, I knew to do that, I knew to do this. But the thing that's amazing is that you knew to do that because of, I think, a couple of things. One is you had this experience at Penn where you were also bullied at the University of Pennsylvania. Do you want to talk at all about yeah. that? Yeah. So when I was a student at the University of, sorry, I know I'm not supposed to, I have to keep my mic here. Um, I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania and I was studying physics. It was my last year. I had worked very, very hard to get where I was. I was taking graduate classes in quantum field theory and cosmology and general relativity. I was like doing all of this amazing physics research and working on some experiments and some electronics for the Atlas detector. And I was on track to go to graduate school and get a PhD in physics. And I was so certain that that was my path. And then there was this student who was you know, in our department, a graduate student, I was an undergraduate, um, and he had some mental health issues. He confided in me. I encouraged him to get help. He refused to get professional help and it escalated a bit. So I brought in the physics department and school administration and asked them to help and step in, uh, to help him. And their response was basically, well, actually we're going to make you responsible and you're going to keep track of his well-being and make sure that he's not harming himself because, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Once again, making exactly. you accommodate this person. Because they say, well, you know, if he knows that you told us, like, he might harm himself. And I was like, oh. And it was that kind of thing where, you know, later in the situation with Uber when they tell me, you know, here's a choice. It was that kind of thing. I didn't have a choice. These people have complete power over my future in physics. And so when they tell me, don't worry about your research, don't worry about these things, don't go to class today, like just focus on him, what am I going to say? Am I going to say no? No. So I was like, okay, like this is awful, but okay. The situation got really, really bad as one would expect. Um, it got so bad that the student threatened to kill himself if I didn't have romantic feelings for him. So I report this to the school. I'm like, I can't be responsible. I can't be involved anymore. This is like seriously dangerous for me right now. I do not feel safe. And their response was to, instead of helping me, they intervened on his behalf. And I tried to report 
their retaliation. I tried to report the se- the sexual harassment, and instead of letting me report it, they wouldn't let me report it. By the way, and they actually refused to grant me a master's degree in philosophy that I was that I was supposed to get. And I remember realizing like this is illegal, and getting legal counsel and finding out yes, this is illegal. They cannot do this, but they are. And then realizing I couldn't do anything about it because doing something about it would mean spending the next two to five years of my life in court trying to fight this case. And I was like, do I want to do that? And so I didn't say anything, right? So I just like threw away all my dreams of becoming a physicist. The professors who were supposed to write me letters of recommendation, they wouldn't talk to me. So... I had no chance of going to grad school because that would look pretty weird if like, oh, she's taking classes with all these professors and they're not writing her letters. It makes me look like a bad student. Wouldn't work. So I realized, you know, I have to have a new career. So I end up, that's what brought me to Silicon Valley. But the biggest lesson that it taught me um, was, you know, how to figure out what my legal rights were how to document things, which came in really handy at Uber because I had now this, you know, like it was second nature to me to take screenshots and back things up. Sad but true, right? And the other thing, though, was that I walked away with a lot of regret and thinking, I wish that I had spoken up. I wish that I had said something. And the regret got even worse when after I published the blog post, um, I started to hear from women who – either were working or had worked in academia. And they would say, look, I know that your blog post is about a company, a startup in Silicon Valley, but I had a similar experience, you know, as a grad student or as a professor or as an undergraduate. And they would tell me their stories and it made me feel really sick because I thought, look at the change that my blog post brought for Silicon Valley. If I had spoken up, about what happened to Penn sooner, maybe these things would not have happened. And then it was nice because when it was time to speak up about Uber, I was like, I'm not making that mistake again. Yeah. It taught you. So what drove you was that that sense of it didn't feel good to stand down, right, at the University of Pennsylvania. But I think the other thing that really drove the way that you responded in Uber's case, I learned in reading your book was actually your childhood. Yes. Because (laughs) you had to be so incredibly persistent to even convince Arizona State University, which is where you started, to admit you. So can you talk about how you got like the, well, talk about your childhood. Should I go all the way back? Yes. All right. All right. Go all the way back (laughs) and talk about like how you grew up. Talk about Yarnell. Talk about the circumstances because I don't think a lot of people know this about you. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's because I'm like, oh my gosh, my story is so much more exciting than just the Uber story. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I grew up in poverty in rural Arizona. Um, and when I say poverty, I mean like we were very poor. Yeah. Um, you write about going hungry. You write about not having gas money. Or yeah, get, couldn't even, to go, even to the, go to the groceries. Exactly. And I was one of seven children. My father was an evangelical preacher who was a salesman as his day job. He sold vacuums, payphones, life insurance. My mother was a homemaker. She homeschooled me and my siblings around till I was like sixth grade uh, level. And then she had to go back to work. And 
I found myself in a very strange situation that I don't really understand now. And I didn't ask many questions about it when it happened. Um, where I was unable to go to public school and I had to educate myself. So I ended up working during the day, had some very interesting jobs. I worked at a place called the spider farm where, um, yeah, it's really awesome. Uh, I loved it. And there were all these venomous spiders like brown recluses and black widows. And we would milk the spiders for the venom because it's very useful and I'd feed them, and it was really awesome. And she was like 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, I was okay. really little. <laughs> so I work, and then I study at night. And this goes on for a little while. And then I, once I was maybe 15 or 16, I had this really significant point, like moment in my life where I realized, like, I looked around at the other young women from my hometown, and they were trying to escape poverty, and they were not successful. They were addicted to drugs. They were living in trailer parks. Even the ones who had gone to high school and had all the opportunities that, you know, I thought as a non-formally educated kid, like, those would be the ticket out, that, that was not their ticket out. They did not have a ticket out. And I thought, oh, my God, what like that's going to be my life. My life is going to be not very good. It's going to be so much less than what I want. And I was a really big reader and I was reading all these books about all these different ways that you could live and all these different things you could do. And I realized, like, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm stuck here. And it was just like I realized I had to fight. I had to fight so hard to get a better life. And the only way that I was going to be able to get out of poverty, I told myself, was I have to go to college. College was my magical ticket. Then I was like, wait, how do I go to college? So I then contacted all of these high schools and colleges and said, okay, like, what are the high school t kids learning? Like, what books are they reading? What textbooks are they studying? And like... Then with the colleges, like, what, what do I need to do to get in? And I learned about all these things I needed to have, a transcript. So I studied all these different things and then wrote up this little transcript and wrote Susan Fowler's Homeschool at the top. <laughs> and it had, like, all the books that I had read and all these homework problems that I had solved. And I, like, kept detailed records of all these things I did. And I had to get letters of recommendation, so I met professors who worked at local colleges and they mentored me and they would give me books to read and I would write papers and it was just a wonderful experience. And then I had to have standardized tests. So I was like, I guess I have to take this thing called the act. Like I have to go and take this thing called the act. So I showed up at this high school <laughs> and everybody else there was like, they're all talking about like, they've been like doing tutors and all these things. And I'm just like, what? It was my first standardized test. And I actually scored really well, though, surprisingly, um, and ended up with a full merit scholarship to Arizona State just based on my ACT score alone. I know it's crazy. I don't think I could redo it if I tried. And so I found myself at Arizona State, and it was so incredible because all of a sudden I realized I can learn about anything I can know about everything. All I had wanted all these years as a teenager was knowledge. Like that was like the thing, right? And so I find myself at Arizona State and I just fell in love with everything I was learning. Yeah, you majored in philosophy. You learned you had a 
interest in science, and then that led to physics in the University of Pennsylvania, which you talked about there. But yeah, I mean, clearly when you describe, you know, basically having to get people to take you seriously, you know, with your homeschooled transcript and, and really trying to make your own future, I'm sure that guy at Uber who propositioned you on that first day had no idea who he was dealing with. <laughs> and also why it was so appropriate when you talk about how when you wrote that blog post that completely started the process of a major investigation into Uber, you made sure that you could back up everything you said in that post. And I want you to talk about, I mean, we know it took off, it went viral. People had a lot of questions about this sort of opaque but incredible company called Uber, and you had really lifted the veil on some of the worst aspects of it. Um, and I appreciate that initially you were like, wow, people are, people care. Like they, they are upset about this mistreatment, but talk about when it just started to turn really bad. Yeah. There was this brief moment of hope where I thought, oh my gosh, all these terrible consequences that I thought would happen that happened to everyone else. Like miraculously, they're not happening to me. And then no. That was a very brief moment. Um, it started with my friends and family would tell me these stories about these conversations they'd, they'd had or people who had contacted them. And there were a lot of reporters that were reaching out and asking questions about me. But there were also people who would call from blocked numbers and call from numbers that then when you called back, the number would be disconnected. And they would ask questions that my friends and family would say, like, this seems like really personal, seems too personal. And that was very scary. And then it got worse. I started to hear from reporters who would bring me rumors that they were trying to get me to comment on or to confirm or deny. And... These rumors were clearly aimed at trying to discredit me, saying that I had been bribed to write the post, I had been blackmailed, the, competitor, the company's competitor was involved. All these things were false. Some of them were really weird that were clearly just like, how low can we go? Like one of the rumors that I heard was that Uber executives were you know, having these orgies with uh, the young female engineers and that I was involved. And I was like, no. <laughs> But just like, you know, every level of how can we discredit this person? Um, and it was really scary because I didn't know what whoever was doing this was looking for. I didn't know what they were going to find. I remember staying up late at night and like unable to sleep because I'm like, what dumb things have I said in my life? Way too many to count. Way too many for me to remember. Like... What mean things have I said? What bad breakups have happened? Like going through a list of like every possible thing that someone could take and be like, she's such a bad person. Look at this thing that she said or look at this thing that she did. And it was terrifying. But the worst part was being followed. And I noticed it when I was leaving. You know, I, I would notice these, this car that just I was like, that's the same car, right? It's following me to the BART station. There was a car parked outside my house for a while that didn't seem to belong there. 
Um, people would follow me on foot from my workplace to the BART station. And it was really, really scary. It was the kind of thing where I was like, okay, I'm literally going to dodge down these side streets and see if they keep following me. I'm going to jump into stores and see if they're still out there when I get out. And they always were. And it was so, so terrifying. What role did being pregnant during this play for you? Oh, that was the worst part. Because, you know, in the early days before I got pregnant, I was like, you know, it's just me. Whatever. I did the right thing. I stood up for, you know, justice. I spoke out about mistreatment. And then a few months later, I found out I was pregnant. And here I am being followed Having friends of mine and people who work in tech say that they're concerned for my life because of how much money is involved in this, tens of billions of dollars. And I remember thinking, I know I'm in my first trimester um, and I'm not supposed to tell people that I'm pregnant, but all I want to do right now is to tweet out that I'm pregnant, please don't hurt me because it wasn't just me. It was now my unborn child. Um, I think one of the things that's so incredible is to blow the whistle in our society is to have to assume some degree of a loss of personal safety. I mean, what does it say when telling the truth means that you are going to face threats and, and fear and trauma potentially well and it the the thing that blew my mind was that the aftermath of blowing the whistle was worse than the things that i had blown the whistle about and i thought like wow what an effective way to keep people from speaking up right has the harassment started up again now that the book is out, now that you are out there and so much more public again? So things are really good right now, and I hope that it stays that way. <laughs> and I'm really hoping that, like, God doesn't have any plan for me to do something really scary and important in my life again. <laughs> like, please. <laughs> you, you did, I mean, you did. You did a really big thing. A really big thing. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. The, the sense I get from your book is that, that you're also, by sharing so much of who you are and how you got to be who you are and how you have grown and changed after it, is that you're also trying not to be defined as Susan Fowler, the woman who was sexually harassed at a major startup, right? Yeah. What are you trying to become? Like, how are, is that something that you're doing? Are you sort of fighting being defined in that vein? And, and what are you hoping, you know, people will see as a result of knowing more about who you are? This is something that I've been wrestling with, um, ever since even before I wrote the blog post, um, and especially in the years since. Um, and I, it's funny because it's actually the same thing that I've been struggling with my entire life, which is this struggle to be not the woman who had things happen to her, but the woman who made things happen. 
And there's this amazing quote by Isaiah Berlin that I mentioned in the book that I read when I was very young about where he says, I wish to be the subject, not the object of my life. And it's one this wanting to be the protagonist, right, of your own story. And I feel like I fought that battle when I was much younger, when I couldn't have an education, when I felt like I was the victim of my circumstances. And I realized I had to kind of turn that on its head and say, okay, what am I going to do about it, right? Okay, I'm going to fight to get into college, and I'm not going to be just like – you know, this young woman who was a victim of her circumstances and a victim of the fact that she was, you know, born and raised into extreme poverty, but that I was going to be the woman who got out of it, who escaped it, who overcame it. And the same thing happened when I was at Penn and then at Uber, where I realized that I was, you know, the victim of these, of this misbehavior, this mistreatment. And I didn't want that to be what defined me, that I was going to be just like collateral damage for someone else's misdeeds. And so I, you know, the way to do something about that is then to do something about it is to then take a step to reframe it, whether internally or to take some action to reframe it. Like in my case, writing a blog post, uh, you know, making myself not the woman who was sexually harassed at Uber, but the woman who spoke up about sexual harassment at Uber. And then there was writing this book because I realized people knew me for a almost 3,000 word, like very carefully written, very carefully documented portrait of the company, of a specific company at a specific point in time. And that was all that they knew about me. And I realized that actually the story of Susan Fowler, the story of why that blog post happened, you could not separate those two, you know, those, what, 2,900 words from all of the years that had come before it, because I had learned all of these lessons that led up to me being able to write that, to be the person who could sit there and say, I've made the mistake before of not speaking up. I've learned these very difficult, very painful lessons, and I will not let them go to waste. I'm going to press publish and writing this book, I think was the ultimate for me way to kind of close that chapter on my life and really claim my story for myself. And I don't think I'm the only one who has these experiences. I think that, you know, it's very natural or common to, have these things happen and then it defines you. But I never wanted to be an activist. I never wanted to be going around the world talking about sexual harassment. I wanted to be a physicist. I wanted to be a violinist. Now, you know, I really want to be a journalist. I want to be a writer. And so there's this temptation to let the things that happen to you define the the path that you take in life. And I wanted to show in this book that that doesn't always have to be the case. That you can be the person to stand up and speak out about something. And then you can still go on and do the things that you wanted to do that you would have done had these things not happened to you. I want to integrate some of the questions from our audience. This person asks, when you think about the change your act of speaking out has created, what do you want people to think of when they question, should I speak out? 
And is the cost, i.e. the pain, worth the benefit? And who are the beneficiaries? Oh, I ask myself this all the time because it's a really difficult question, right? The costs are very great. That's why most people don't speak out because the consequences are sometimes completely horrifying and we would never say, yes, you should take those consequences on yourself. You should throw away your career. You should, you know, take on this retaliation for speaking out. But if we've learned anything in the last few years, it's that the, the more that we raise our voices, the more that we say this is what's really going on in the world, and it's not just in Silicon Valley. It's not just in Uber. It's everywhere. It's part of our society. The more of us that speak out, like we can't be ignored. If there's one person standing out there saying, hey, sexual harassment is a problem. Hey, retaliation is a problem. Hey, these things are issues. It's easy to ignore that person. If there are a bunch of us out there saying, hey, this has happened to me, it's happened to them, it's happened to you, they can't ignore us. And I've noticed that there's been a shift, it's a, a very subtle shift, but a shift in the way that we think about these issues and we think about the people who speak out. Because before I wrote this blog post, I talked to a few journalists and they were not able to get anybody else on the record. They were not able to get anyone else to talk about these things. Mm. That has changed quite a bit in the last few years. Well, speaking of change, what's your reaction to the verdict in the Harvey Weinstein case? I mean, basically this week, it just happened this week, that the women who, you know, continued to have interactions with Weinstein even after he assaulted them, right? And so it was considered a very complicated case that the jury believed that these women had been raped and assaulted by him. I think that the, the thing I keep thinking about is that there's a cost that will always go unseen and there's a cost that will never be quantified. And it is the loss that the victims of this kind of treatment, the, the loss in career, the loss in just like mental energy of having to deal with these things and process them and handle them. You cannot put a price on that. And there is no way, like, that's the thing I keep coming back to. And that's the thing that I think, you know, I myself haven't even really been able to fully process and reckon with. But ultimately, do you see the verdict as progress? Like... I really don't know what to think yet. I've, yeah. I've, unfortunately, I've been on book tour these last few days <laughs> so, and I haven't slept much, so I'm still like trying to catch up on I'm, everything. I'm curious though. So your blog post came out months before like Me Too mm-hmm. really took off. Where do you see yourself in relation to Me Too? I don't really know where I stand because, you know, there were so many women who spoke out before me and so many that came after me and it feels like I was, you know, one of the dominoes in this very long, long thing, many, many years in the works. There's part of it that feels really awesome. And then there's part of it that feels absolutely terrible because when I meet other women who have spoken out about these things, there's like this silent understanding and it's this sadness of the thing that brings you and I together is that we've both been treated in this horrific way. And it gives you this kind of like low-seated anger 
where you're like, I don't want anyone else to experience this. And it actually being a parent makes it even worse because I'm just like, oh my God, if my daughter ever gets treated this way, like what did I spend my life doing? Mm. You know, I can't imagine her ever growing up in this kind of world. I think you're touching on this, but these two audience questions kind of go together how can we get justice for women whose careers are in jeopardy or destroyed because of workplace sexual harassment, particularly in startups in the Bay? And how can we promote accountability and transformational change at tech companies? Do you have any thoughts on Those are really good questions. I think on the first, I don't know. I think, you know, I can look at my own experience and say, what would it mean for you know, that the wrongs to somehow be like made right. And I don't think that there is any way to really like, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what it would be like today to be a physicist, right? How do you give someone that back? How do you give someone a whole career back? I don't know. Um, and the second part on how to have greater transparency, I think the biggest thing is listening to people who are sharing their stories. Because by the time someone is putting themselves out there, like there's already so many times when whatever was happening could have been stopped, right? By the time someone is sitting there thinking, I'm ready to throw my career away. I'm willing to have all of these terrible things happen to me. There were a lot of decisions that went up to that. And so anything we can do to stop that process and to, to make sure that things are made right and fixed and handled appropriately much earlier, I think is the biggest thing that especially tech companies can do. Well, this person wonders, what are your thoughts on the fact that companies force you out and in exchange for severance, the victim has to agree to never talk about this? Oh, that's complete crap. (laughs) Like, come on. The fact that that has even become socially acceptable should tell us something about the way that our society views people's, like, just truth and facts about the world, right? These aren't like, this isn't like, oh, you're not allowed to, like, wear this color on this day or you're not allowed to do this thing. It's that, oh, you're literally not allowed to talk about things that happen to you, things about your story. Think about how messed up that is and get angry about it because I think that it's like we should not stand for it. There are a lot... And you, and there are a lot of uh, examples of you talking about non-disclosures, of you talking about forced arbitration, mm-hmm. and your concerns about how that gets used. There are a lot of people who are curious about how things changed at Uber. So I'm just going to give you a couple <laughs> examples. For example, this person wants to know how many of those Uber management got managers got fired. Another person wants to know what happened to the HR team at Uber. Please tell me that none of them are still there. God, you I hope they're not. not because you, you actually haven't really stayed in touch. No. Company, so most right? of my Post- friends left the company. I have very little insight. I have no idea what it's like. I really hope that it's better. I really, really hope that it's better. Um, but I don't work there anymore. Um, I don't have a way to really like, you know, I also don't use LinkedIn. Um, so it's hard for me to tell who's there and who's not. Um, I wish I had a better, more satisfying answer for you, but unfortunately that's the best I got. Do you, do you ever take Uber? No, (laughs) 
Not for the reasons that you think. Well, partly for the reasons that you think, because I wouldn't take them, except <laughs> there's been times when, like, I'm sorry, I need a ride. Or I'm hungry, and there's, like, no caviar or DoorDash. And I've tried to sign up, but I'm banned. Because I try to sign up, and it gives me an error message. And I'm like, I know that error message. <sighs> so interesting. So weird. <laughs> But they're everywhere. Has it stopped being uncomfortable to see? Well, the thing is, it's never been uncomfortable to see. I've never, like, seen an Uber go by and be like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I've always just been like, oh. Because I didn't speak out because I hated Uber or because... I thought they were all evil or because I wanted anything like terrible to happen to them. I spoke out because I cared very deeply about what was going on and I wanted things to be better. I wanted things to be better for my coworkers who I very, very much loved and respected and wanted them to be okay. It came from a place of how do I shine a light, not how do I burn this down? And I think that that's important because I think that it's, You know, when somebody, at least in my case, you know, standing up, it was because I felt like it was the right thing to do, not because I wanted revenge, not because I wanted retribution, but because I wanted the world to be better. I wanted Uber to be better. I wanted people to be better. And so, yeah. This audience member wants to know, what does your family think of where you are today? Were your siblings as successful at school? They are all so smart and so much smarter than me. Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like we're all very fortunate. I think it has to do a lot with the messages that our parents taught us growing up. Because one thing that was very important to my family and that my parents would tell me all the time was it's not what you have. It's who you are. That's what matters. And so we grew up not having anything and not ever caring until, you know, I got a little bit older and I was like, oh, wait, I really don't have anything. Um, but, you know, it was it was very important because then we were always trying to be better in these very specific, very unusual ways. So my siblings, you know, they're very doing very, very well. Um, my father, unfortunately, passed away many, many years ago, but um My mom is remarried to an amazing guy who's, you know, he's our dad now and he's fantastic and he loves us all. And it's amazing because, you know, my family looks at these kinds of things and they're like, yeah, you spoke out. Like, of course you did. Like bad things were happening. Good job. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you didn't. You didn't let anybody shut you up. And so that feels good. It's like a little like, you know, it keeps me. Keeps me even keeled. And there's going to be a film about your story. Yeah, there is. I'm very excited (laughs) and nervous. (laughs) I'm hoping to play one of the evil HR ladies. (laughs) That's some pretty, pretty awesome people are involved. People who are in the film Hidden Figures. and Yeah, so Alison Schroeder, who wrote Hidden Figures, which is the greatest movie. She's writing the screenplay, has mostly written the screenplay. Um... So yeah, it's pretty exciting. So I know that you drew a lot of inspiration as you were going through 
some of the hardest moments of your life from the philosophers, right? Yes. You write about Plutarch, you write about, um, you know, if you can't control what's happening, you can still control whether or not you're a good person. But I also heard you reference Mr. Rogers. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, and, I mean, shout out to public broadcasting. <laughs> I know for real. But what I really want to know is what, why you referenced him. Like what, what did he teach you? Like what role did he play as you were going through it? So it's funny because I actually just learned something about myself about this a few days ago, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring that in a second. Um, the, the wonderful thing about Mr. Rogers is that he taught kindness and love and compassion for oneself and how that is then the vehicle for how you use and develop and show compassion and love for the world in that it all starts with you. It all starts with understanding who you are, understanding that it's okay to feel the way that you feel, to make the mistakes that you make, to make the decisions that you make. And it was very, very peaceful to me in times when, especially when I was at Uber, when the messages that I would hear were not ones of kindness or love or compassion. They were of aggression and tearing people down and having to be defensive and having to be angry. And I would read, and I actually I have it on my phone. Um, these little, there are these little books that have that are collections of things that he said, and they're so wonderful because you can just open them to any page, and you'll realize that these words that you would, you know, you would never hear an adult like in ordinary conversation saying these things to you, and it makes you wonder why. And like, why aren't we saying these things to each other? Why aren't we talking about these things? And it was really impactful for me. But then this other amazing realization that someone else had about me was I was actually at Politics and Prose in D.C. last week um, on my book tour. And Liz Brunig, who's now a columnist at The Times, where I work, she was interviewing me and she had this realization that, huh. Fred Rogers was a minister. Your father had passed away. Do you think that maybe that's why you went to Fred Rogers? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Because I remember having these moments where I would think, I wish my father was here right now. Because he was such a gentle-hearted, but, like, very intellectually, like, intense person. And we would have these conversations where we would just talk and we would talk and we would talk. And he would tell me things that I wouldn't find or hear from anyone else. And I really think that there is something to that, that in these dark moments I had where I didn't have my father to go to, I had Fred Rogers. Um, we actually kind of share a little bit of that. I mean, I grew up with parents who they didn't praise and like, I love yous were not things that just like flowed naturally out of their mouths. And Fred Rogers would also, would often fill that, that void. But I wonder, like, as I'm listening to you talk about, about your dad and, and about how you wish a parent was there in the really toughest times right now, you know, we started, you were saying you're good. I mean, things are really good, right? Yeah. Exciting for you 
Do you, have you thought a lot about him also in these celebratory moments? I have. Um, and it's, it's really difficult because he was the kind of person where he was, and my mom is this way too, by the way. Like my mom is like the best person in the world. She's the kind of person where we always say she would never, ever in a million years do something mean spirited or like her, every intention and everything that she does comes from this place of like such love and such like love, not for just for people, but for the world, like just like this amazing, amazing love. And for my father, he really wanted to change the world. He looked around and he felt like the world was so unjust and that it could be so much better. And he wanted to do great things. He wanted to do things that, you know, would really change like millions of people's hearts. And he tried so hard to change the world. And he realized that, you know, the world didn't really, they weren't really ready for him. They didn't really want him. And so instead what he did is he decided that it was enough to just love the person directly in front of you. And so no matter where he was, no matter what he was doing, he had this great sense of compassion where he would strike up conversations. And he was an introvert like me, by the way, so I know that this was very difficult for him. But he would strike up conversations with strangers all the time. And they would talk for hours. I used to get so annoyed as a kid because we'd go to McDonald's just to get like, you know, the 60 cent hamburgers or something. And there would be somebody sitting at a booth near us who looked sad or alone or looked like they were struggling. Or in my mind, I was thinking like, oh my gosh, dad, don't. This person's dangerous. <laughs> and we were all just like, but he would go over there and he would just talk to them. And it was amazing because as I grew older, I realized he knew people everywhere. We would walk into a Walmart like 200 miles away from our house and the greeter would be like, Pastor John, oh my God, it's so good to see you. You won't believe it. Like all these things that have happened. And that was the way that he made his mark on the world. But it's so crazy to me because like I'm not that good of a person. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's like, wow, I really want to make the world better all the time. Like, sometimes I'm just like, I just want to do physics. I just really want to do software engineering and all this stuff is happening to me. Like, and I have to speak out about it. But he was the kind of person who sought out changing the world, who was okay with putting himself on the line purposefully. And I think so much to how much of the things that I've done, writing the blog post, writing this book, speaking out, hopefully inspiring other people to do the same, and how much of that is directly because of him and because of what I saw that he did in the world. And it's, I kind of just want to say to him so many times, like, this is because of you. Like, you, like, he would tell me so many times about how, like, he wished he had done more. He wished he had done more. And it's this great lesson for all of us because we don't always get to see the fruits of what we've worked so hard for. And that's definitely the case for him where like the good that I've done, you know, he was the one who taught me how to do that. This person wants to know how 
we can support people who find themselves in similar situations as you did. So not necessarily if you know somebody and you want to be able to be helpful, to say the right thing, to support them in the right ways, what would have helped you? So a lot, actually it was amazing because a lot of people did help me and a lot of people did, you know, after I published the blog post, a lot of people did reach out and say, I believe you. I'm here for you. How can I support you? What can I do? And there was an amazing group of people that like, they, they were there for me. And when all the bad stuff was happening, they kept saying, we believe you. We like, we know that you did the right thing. We're here for you. What can we do? And there's just something so powerful about that of just being able to look around and say like, I'm not alone. And it makes such a huge difference. That, yes, and the statement, I believe you, it's pretty amazing, isn't it, when you put your It is. Just for someone to do that, no questions asked. It is. Um, it's life-changing. This person says, what are you most grateful for from these brutal experiences? A silver lining? It's a good question. I think the the thing that, you know, I'm really thankful for is the way that we become better or grow as people is by how we handle the challenges that we face, right? If everything's easy, it's really easy to be a good person and do the right thing when it's like a cakewalk and everything is just like, okay, I'm just going to walk through life and everything's going to be fine. It's really easy to be a good person when that happens. But what you quickly learn is that the second that things get hard, it's really, really hard to do the right thing. And it's, and I have done the wrong thing so, so many times. And I know what it's like to be there. And you, you think, okay, I really messed that one up. Please give me a second chance. Like, let me show at least to myself, even if to nobody else, that I can do the right thing when this thing happens. And so I am thankful in a lot of ways for the bad things that have happened because, and the different situations that I've gone through, because I kind of feel like I've been given like a lot of second chances to do the right thing. Hmm. And the great thing about it too, is that it's a gift, right? Because once you go through something really, really bad and you make it through, whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing. You now have some knowledge, some lesson that you can pass on to other people. And so that was one of the things that I really wanted to do with this book is to say, here are the situations that I went through. Here are the challenges that I faced. Here's what I did about them. In some cases, I did the wrong thing and I regretted it and still regret it. But in some cases, I did the right thing and here's how it worked out and here's how I decided to do that. And I really do feel like what's the point of going through all that if you don't get to share it with other people so they can learn from what you've been through? Because that's how I've learned most of the lessons that I, you know, that have helped me get to where I am today. You know, I'm up here quoting Fred Rogers and Isaiah Berlin. Like those are people who they, they went through their own issues and they went through their own challenges and they shared the lessons that they learned with the world. And so I really hope that when you read this book that, you know, that you will find something in there where you'll say like, oh, wow, this is what I needed to hear today. Or I'm going to hold on to this because maybe it'll help me. Or, you know what, my friend needs to read this book. Or my daughter needs to read this book. Or my sister needs to read this book. Or my son needs to read this book. That's what I really, really, really hope that people walk away from this with. 
writing, it feels like was also in some ways a silver lining to this because at the time when you felt like you couldn't speak, it sounds like writing was a way for you to speak until you got your chance. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> that's the great thing about having amazing interviewers is that I'm sitting in here. I'm just like, okay, tell me more. <laughs> what else can we talk about my childhood? <laughs> Got a lot of things. <laughs> well, there is one last question, and this is an informed tradition, which is to ask all speakers this question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Oh, I'm going to give you one that really is kind of annoying because I'm going to say that here's what I think. I think that the world is very confusing and very unjust and it's very difficult to find your way in it. It's very difficult to figure out what do I do? How do I make decisions? How do I know what's right? What do I value? For me, the answer to that has been through the really sometimes terribly boring works of the philosophers. (laughs) And there are all these amazing ancient philosophers who they wrote things that you can read today and immediately find something in there that will change your life. The Stoic philosophers are amazing with this because their whole thing is how do you figure out what you can actually control in your life? Because according to them, a lot of the suffering that we face is because we try to control things that are so far beyond our control. And so, and it seems like giving up sometimes when you hear it, where you're like, but why wouldn't I want to control things that are like affecting me? But that's, that's exactly why that's so important because you should only let things affect you if they're in your control. You should only let things get to you if you're in your, they're in your control. So what I found when I was at Uber and I was reading all these works of all these philosophers was actually I can control something like nobody's taking my voice from me. I can speak up. That's one thing I can control. And it was so empowering to have just like a list. And I would, I would make these lists in my journal. Like I can't control this. I can't control this. Can't control how this manager treats me. Can't control what happens to me on this day, but I can control how I act. I can control what I say. I can control how I treat other people and I can control what I do about this. And then there's also Immanuel Kant who do not read him because you will get so bored and you will be like, that's Susan. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, you can read him, but like first read this. There's a little book called Kant, a very short introduction. Read that first because it's way better than reading the real thing at first. Um, But so he's amazing because his whole thing, well, he has a lot of things, but one of his main things is that we should treat people as ends in themselves, not as means to ends. Right. So and the way that I like to like to think about this is that we should treat people as the protagonists of their own stories and rightly so not as secondary characters in our own who are helping us achieve our goals. And once you start to think about it, it really shifts the way that you treat other people in kind of a way that's sometimes scary because you're like, wait, I need to accomplish something. I need to do something. How do I get other people on board and helping me? Well, helping them realize their dreams along the way. And I think that it's really profound. So we're sitting here in San Francisco. Wow, I'm way beyond 60 seconds. Okay, take the first part of 60 seconds. This is all just adding on. Um, We're sitting here in San Francisco with some of the most, you know, we're surrounded by some of the most wealthy companies in the world who have amazing and very sometimes frightening levels of influence. And when you think about that and you think, well, how are they, how do they view other people? Hmm. 
Who are their customers to them? Who are their employees? Who are their executives? How are they treating them? And I wish so badly that everybody could just start thinking about the people around them, whether it's your friends, your family, your employees, your customers, anyone you're around as ends in themselves or the protagonists of their own stories and not just as secondary characters in yours. Well, Susan Fowler, you've clearly become the protagonist. You've clearly become the subject (laughs) of your own story. And I really appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, everyone, for being here. This is just really an honor. Thank you. So copies of uh, Susan Fowler's book, Whistleblower, My Journey to Silicon Valley and Fight for Justice at Uber, are on sale in the lobby. And she has agreed to sign books. So be sure to pick one up. Oh, and there's also art. Because my toddler, she has requests. Mama draw cat, mama draw owl, (laughs) mama draw heart, mama draw snowman, mama draw Christmas tree. So I can draw any of those things. So you are going to get an added bonus. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you so much.